all of a sudden I hear Scott like screaming and yelling and runs downstairs with an Iraqi army soldier. Like he's got him by like the scruff of his uniform and like throws him outside. And basically the guy had like tried, he cleared a room with an RPG on his shoulder. Like what, like what was this guy going to do if there was someone <laughs> in that room going to shoot at him? Right, he's so going to shoot this RPG. For people don't know what clearing a room is, it's where you do kind of like a SWAT team style invasion of a room and everyone quickly assesses the situation and, and is, is, fucking ready to shoot shit and this man has an rpg on his back (laughs) hello and welcome to the learned men podcast where i have interesting conversations with interesting people my first guest will be brendan good uh, my longtime friend computer programmer iraq war vet and semi-pro video game player so i hope you all enjoy let's see what do i want to talk about first how about how about uh i'm gonna i'm gonna start with like uh what you're currently doing so um so I know you're doing computer programming right now, and okay. I think a lot of people don't really understand what exactly you do on a regular basis. Because I know you're not you're not coding all the time, are you? Are you are you just sitting there in a computer all day long, just coding things, or how all does right. it work exactly? Okay, right. So right now I'm I'm not doing very much programming. So I work at a company called ACS, and for the most part I'm doing a mix of support, network engineering. Uh, virtualization stuff, doing like uh, virtual machines, like uh, you know, like a virtual, like uh, you've done Cisco stuff, kind of. And so, like, you might know, like, what a what you can have a server, and then you can have on that server you can have a virtual machines. So you have multiple different computers, like virtually in there that people can log into and use the resources. Like that that machine, like give like makes virtual computers, and it gives it resources. So you have multiple people logging into that machine and onto different VMs. And so I'm doing a lot of stuff with that, uh, doing a lot of Cisco stuff, uh, doing a little bit of programming, like writing some scripts and doing some automation type stuff. But when I do that, it's pretty much right now it's sitting at the desk, taking calls, doing some troubleshooting, Googling a ton of shit, and basically just – Working at the edge of my knowledge level all day long because it's something new every day. Like yesterday, I stood up a WUSA server or WSA server. Which it's like a Windows uh, update server, support update server. And I'd never done that before. And literally, they're like, hey, Himmel, which is a hospital that is a client of ours, like they need a new WUSA server. And you need a, it's going to be a virtual server. You need to stand it up. And then apply group policy to it. Group policy is like how uh, it's how like computers are going to do updates, get their Windows updates, what uh, like what the users are going to be able to get into, if they're going to be able to download stuff, uh, what printers they're going to see, and you have to build all that and apply it in the group policy. And so that was like all my day yesterday was doing that and Googling stuff and learning how to do it and then doing it at the same time. And so it was very scary. So as far as um, – so there, I've always heard that uh, especially for fastly growing fields like uh, let's say computer science or biology, that by the time that you have done two years of school that there's already uh, – the, the field has changed. Like it's changing so rapid rapidly that there's no way that – you can actually catch up by going to college. It can only give you kind of like a baseline, then you constantly have to learn beyond that because the technology is changing faster than you can actually learn the information. Is that what you found to be true? Or Yeah. 
So like when I started uh, my, the computer science program at Grandview, I was like we started programming in Java and Java. I mean, people still use Java, but like it seemed like when I first started, that was like the language to start learning. And now I, I don't use Java right now. I use, If I write in programs, I'm using like C Sharp or uh, I'll write some Python scripts or – there's tons of like, or I, I like Haskell, which is a different kind of programming language. But like, job, like starting out, it was like, it feels like it was completely different till now. And then like, also, you might, you maybe you're gonna try to prompt this later on, but so like when, like my computer science program is basically like when I got my degree, it's basically leans towards programming. And then when I did my internship, it was an internship, but I got my job at DMAC, it was more towards like support stuff. Which is okay, but I don't want to work support. And then uh, working now at ACS, it's like a mix of support and then all that other stuff I just talked about. And so I pretty much went away from programming. And while I still get to do it occasionally, like I went to a whole different field in the like computer science world. Like I went from programming, which is what I went to school for for four years, to like the opposite end in, my, in like doing networking and stuff like that. The stuff we used to do like in high school. So it's one more of like developing and one's like actually applying what you developed oh. or so so like the the programming is developing and then like what I'm doing so like there's developing there's okay so like in computer science field like at Grandview I learned all about development and coding and then I also took some networking stuff and I learned a little bit about like virtualization and Linux and all that's different things and so now I'm using those little bit of classes I took, like the, the networking. I Like at Granville, I only took one networking class. I only took one like virtualization class, and that's pretty much what I'm doing now. I just – I see I like that side of the stuff more than I like programming. Like programming is okay, but I, it's hard to sit at a desk all day and, you know, think of if-l statements and all, right and just – I don't <laughs> – I don't. I don't have fun. Oh doing no! It. I, trust me. I tried doing it, and it was it was cool at first. And then you're like, I really got to sit here for like eight nine hours. Yeah, I, <laughs> I like I like doing what I'm doing because it's different stuff every day, and it's I don't know virtualization like doing the virtualization stuff. Like I I I learned a little bit in school, but like actually seeing it and doing it is it's it's really cool. That's kind of what I'm trying to go, get towards now, and I'm trying to get my like Cisco, my CCNA and stuff as well. Like I just bought some books last week for my Cisco books to do my CCNA. So I've been studying that for like an hour or two every day. And hopefully maybe this spring, summer, I'll go and get that certification and one step closer to making some more money. So uh, for people that don't know, uh, that might not might be confused by what virtualization is. So if you work at any sort of large uh, corporation or business um, organization, anything like that, most of the time your data is not actually stored on your computer. Uh, yes. The majority of your you, – you'll, you'll have like an account, and it's on this big storage device, a server, and you're actually just loading your stuff every time you log in off of the server. You're not actually getting it off the computer. I mean is that yeah. that's basically virtualization? Yeah, basically, yeah. So like so at like big companies – so say my, my company, for instance, we're not very big, but like I have a laptop, which I do store stuff on, but then we also have uh, servers that we save stuff to as well. But a lot of the people in the company have what we call thin clients, and thin clients is basically a tiny little computer that doesn't have any resources really to it, like doesn't have any storage in it, doesn't have a lot of memory. All it does is hooks up to an Ethernet port and runs back and pretty much hooks up to the server. 
And what they do is they turn on their thin client and they log into it. And when they log into it, it goes back to the server and pulls out what we call their view. And that it's like their virtual desktop. It's and it's stored on the server. And so they're, they're logging into that pretty much every time. And like, so like I can go in into our, our, our VM admin, uh, site and like say if someone's view is messed up, I can reset it right there from my desk. I just log into our virtualization console basically. And so they're pretty much – they don't have a physical like computer. They have a, a virtual computer that they can log into anywhere and so, see all their same stuff. So, so uh, I guess a good analogy would be their uh, their computer is just a body, but it has no brain. So it has the ability yeah, to yeah. function, but it can't store any data. Yes, basically. So it has to get that data from somewhere else, which is a giant machine that can, has everyone's data all up in it. So Yes. Um, so is that something you see as a general trend for computers? And you know, I, I keep hearing, you know, I hear people say stuff about the cloud and how, like my phone, I can get my uh, my Gmail, like basically tracks everything I freaking do, and I can get on my computer, my phone, everything. It all has the same information on it. It's all shared between all the different devices based on an account, and uh, I think that's the way computers are going in the future, as far as I can tell. I mean, they're putting these big servers and data together, and then. You're just getting some way to access it through the internet, but it's eventually. I don't think people are going to actually have real physical computers. So, so I'm not. By, I'm by no means an expert, and if any actual like experts listen to this, like my my <laughs> my, my my explanation of like virtualization, they'll probably murder me on. But <laughs> but like so, I, I kind of agree with you in terms of physical computers that going away. But I mean, there's still going to be physical computers. There has to be, but. Like big companies and stuff, I think they're going more towards virtualizing. Like they'll have like a, a couple big servers, and within those servers they'll have small like they'll vir- have virtual servers, and in those virtual servers they'll store virtual machine like virtual desktops and stuff. And so it, like it's going that way, but there's still gonna I think always be a place for physical computers. How the fuck are you gonna play games if you don't get a physical? Oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll still have a physical computer, but but as far as any sort of large organization, they want if they want top down control, they have to have the. I, I think so, yeah. I think oh, okay. you're right. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so, is there anything uh, that you see that's interesting in the in the uh, programming field or or any sort of computer field that you're like excited about seeing that's coming out in the future here? Or oh, let me think. So for me, I I'm kind of leaning on this virtualization thing just because I'm kind of into it right now. And like, in, especially just because of what I did yesterday, having to stand up at, at my, like a server by myself. But with everything, like it seems like, like we just talked about it, everything's going towards that. And so I, I'd like to see like, I just read an article this morning about quantum computing. And while I'm not like an expert on quantum computing or anything, apparently it's going to be like a lot bigger soon because just there's been a lot of breakthroughs. And I wish I would have researched a little more on it so I could talk about it, but I haven't. But maybe with that, it could lead to more breakthroughs in virtualization. I don't know. I don't know yet. That'll be a topic for another another podcast when I do some more research and so I don't sound like an idiot. The only thing I know about quantum computing is the CIA wants it so they can take all our data even faster and more yeah. of it. <laughs> they, uh, so quantum computing, um, I don't know too much about it, but I do know it has to do with like – building some sort of processors on like a an atomic level at like yes, the lowest level possible yeah 
and making them like how much faster is this supposed to be? Twenty times faster? A thousand times faster? Twenty thousand times? Like what? What's the? What kind of a jump are we getting in computing, as far as you know? Oh man, so I think it's different in terms of like the computing we think of. Like, I don't think a quantum computer could quite do like uh, in terms of like gaming like we do, but I think it can process certain types of data faster. Like I'm, I'm doing some research while we're talking right now because I'm so not an expert on this topic. <laughs> but uh, so let's see here. Quantum computing versus a normal PC. I just, I'm Googling this real quick. So this article from Extreme Tech says in the future, quantum computers are going to outpace normal PCs in terms of speed of computing data and let's see what else it says. It'll just be able to handle more processes at once than what a normal computer did, which is which makes sense because it's doing it on a different level. But I, I can't give you much more than that. Hmm. I don't know enough. So I guess yeah, I mean I, I mean I guess it's just a it's going to go a little faster. But as far as application right now, since they don't actually have a quantum computer to play with, yeah, they can't really develop a uh, any sort of application for it. But just know that I've read many an article on how the government wants one as fast as possible, so they can big brother you even harder than they already are. <laughs> pretty yeah, pretty much every government wants one. Well yeah, everyone government always wants the the one thing that's going to destroy all the competition. Yeah, but yeah. I'm sure businesses want it too. But uh, government's going to throw all of that money back in there. U.S. government wants it bad. All right. Be uh, it. But all right, so so is there any other? Um, is there anything that you didn't expect when you went into doing, you know, like the computer science field or computer programming or anything like that? Um, like, like how'd you decide to do it? Because I know originally, you know, we were both going to school and doing like some sort of biology stuff, and then, uh, you know, one day you decided you're going to do the computer programming. Was there anything that really just like triggered you that made you like it, or like what what pushed you towards that field, and then like what I guess what kept you in it? Well, yeah, okay. So in high school, we did all the networking stuff classes at Central Campus. And then, so that was kind of cool. And then going into the army, while most mostly I was just an infantryman, I did get to learn a little bit more networking. And that was I, I always found that interesting working with computers, interesting. And then once we got once I got out and I moved back moved back to Des Moines, and then uh, I started we started doing like the biology and thinking about going to nursing and stuff. I don't know. I just kind of didn't like. I I just didn't find it as interesting as I found like the stuff that we like the networking and Cisco stuff we did in high school. And when I, when I was looking at Grandview and uh, talking to the advisors, uh, and after I took my math assessment, they're like, "You should go into the computer science program. Your math scores are pretty much off the chart." I was like, "All right, I'll ch I'll try it out. Damn, I like doing I like doing the chart. I placed out. I placed out. I placed out a calculus." So I was like, I'll, t I'll do this. Was this before you took calculus or, or after? This, this, this was before I took calculus because we took that pre-calc class at DMAC and I hated it. But then after that, I still – I just like studied a little bit and then I placed out of calculus Oh, because at the end of it, they do a little bit of calculus I think though. Yeah, yeah. They do like the it's, basics. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who do not know, I attempted to take a pre-calculus class after I worked overnights at Quick Trip and I successfully fell asleep in it every day for about weeks straight. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, drop that thing like a bad habit. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> but like so when they told me that, I was like, okay, I'll try this out. 
And so I started the programming, started stuff at Grandview, like doing Java. And it was, it was interesting. I liked it. And then uh, a teacher, another teacher came to like started my second year, I think. His name was Ryan McCleary. And he's probably the smartest man I've ever met in my life. And he taught me uh, a language called Haskell, which is a, a functional programming language. And like Java is a, uh, Java's an imperative language. They're, just, they, they, they're different like in terms of how you program them and how they function. And I really liked learning the ha- Haskell just because I, I seemed to understand it more than I understood like Java and C++ and all that. And so that, that got me really interested in like the computer science world. And then taking the networking classes again and then starting to learn about virtualization and the cloud, it like started to transition me from program wanting to do programming to maybe doing something else in the computer science world. And that's kind of where I ended up with this job at ACS. Like graduating, I could have probably gotten to a programming gig like at Wells Fargo or something like that and making, you know, sixty, seventy thousand a year. But I decided to take this one because I found the stuff more interesting, and while it was a, it's a pretty big pay cut for what I could have been making, it's still decent enough at the moment that I can do it and learn a bunch of stuff and have the potential to make more than what I probably could make doing programming. And I like it. It's like well, yeah, liking it is is the the huge deal. If you can survive with the money and you like it, like every day I get off work right now, I'm like, fuck, today was a good day. I learned a lot of shit. I liked what I did. And then I, I come home, my brain's a little fried because I've been like – my brain's been working all day, but like I like what I'm doing. Like I, I, Emma, like my girlfriend, I tell her every day, you know, I, I come back and you know, we go to dinner and I tell her about my day and she always says that, you know, I seem to like what I'm doing. So. Well, if you talk about good. it a lot and it's not – and it's in a positive way, chances are you like it. Yeah, I love it. So I know when I used to work at uh, Quit Trip. I would dog it all the time, but in all reality, I did actually enjoy it to a point, you know? So. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's uh, let's delve more into your life here. So uh, before you became, decided to become a computer programmer and were a student and everything, I know you uh, were in the Army. So what did you do in the Army? Because I think people are going to be surprised. It is not the most uh, high-speed, highly motivated uh, – high IQ job that you might think it is after you're hearing that Brendan Good is a computer programmer. <laughs> <laughs> so you want me to start from like the beginning? Yeah. So like, how'd you decide to uh, join the army? How about that? All right. So high school, we'll go back way, way in the day. I, you know, I'm going to be 29 here in two days, no, man. Oh, whatever, dude. Just get and over so, it. all right. So <laughs> high, high, high school. So senior year of high school, I was like, fuck, I don't want to go to college yet. I really, didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I'd always kind of wanted to join the Air Force because my grandpa was in the Air Force. And then, but being a teenager and being rebellious, I was like, fuck that. I want to join the Army. And so I went and talked to the Army recruiters one day after school, and I talked to Sergeant Henry, my recruiter, into coming back to my house with me and talking to my parents. So that was a whole big fiasco. They didn't like that. But eventually, I talked him into signing the paperwork for me because no matter what, I was going to turn 18. And I was going to go anyways, sign my own paperwork. But basically, I went because I didn't want to go to school and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was like, you know what? I'll join the army. That'll give me some money to pay for school, and I'll get to go do some shit. And not a terrible strat. Oh, also, uh, let's see. What what year is this? Just so like everyone knows, what year you're uh, you joined the army in, so people have an idea. 
what was going so on I start, in the world. I started contemplating it in the, the about the middle of 2005, and then I joined in July of 2006. So, so this was this was right before the surge happened. Right before John McCain's fantastic surge in Iraq. Yeah. We'd been in Iraq for over three years, been in Afghanistan for five, six or so, and uh, Brendan Good decides he's just gonna go for it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so you know, so, so I, just, I joined. I went to, I went to my ASVAB. I scored what was my GT? I think I scored like a 127 on my GT. Which is, which is good. You can get any job in the Army That's with that. That's my much. GT score. And so they're like, hey, you can do any job you want. And I was like, uh, well, I want maybe do some stuff with the computers. And they're like, hey, you can be a fire direction – or you can do be an advanced field artillery tactical, tactical data system specialist. Oh, I was like, That's, my God. That sounds, I was like, that sounds pretty cool. Hold on one second. Let me turn that ringer off. It's like, that sounds pretty cool. And so they told me about it, and they're like, yeah, so you basically will be doing the math and setting up networks and like – helping artillery shoot, like doing the math of where the artillery rounds are going to shoot. I was like, fuck, that sounds pretty cool. I'll do that. They're like, okay, here's here's your bonus. And it was only like $6,000, which is bullshit, but I took it. Went to basic training at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, what? Uh, got to Fort Sill July 2006. Started basic at Echo 1st the 40th, which is, that's uh, like, this, my, that was the unit name. Um, did basic for what was it nine weeks? I think it's been so long. Yeah, nine weeks. Yeah, I think it originally was nine. I went for nine, and then I think a couple years after I went, uh, they switched it to ten. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, you're right. So I did that, uh, and then they're like, okay, you're gonna go to AIT now for. But so for everyone else, that's uh, advanced individual training. That's where you actually learn your job. And so I went to AIT, and I was what's called a hold under. Uh, AIT because there were so many people there. Oh no no no! It's hold over. Hold, hold over. over. Hold yeah, over. Yeah yeah yeah. Although I was born for both basic training and AIT, it's terrible. So like, I got there like okay. So there's so many people here. There was like 500 people in my starship, and a, for everyone, a starship is basically a big building with a drill pad, and that's your barracks are all there, and all the all the different platoons live there. And there was like 500 people there. So um. I'm trying to give a little more description of a starship. For anyone who's never been in the military, there's basically this giant square concrete building, and uh, there's a, there's some levels to it. And on the bottom floor, there's a big concrete just open space, and then there's a building above it. And then each level just has a giant open room where they just have you know 50 to 100 people just crammed in there with bunks and lockers. And that's yep. where most soldiers stay when they're in basic training in AIT. And I, I don't know why we call it a starship, but that's always what I've heard it called, so I just call it that. But everyone's everyone in the army seems to know what you're talking about when you say starship. So, but uh, so my so we're 500 people there in the starship, and then uh, they're like, so you can't get in class because like there's two classes. There's like the class going right now is full, and there's two classes like in front of you that are both full. So I had to wait two months to get into a class. Holy basically, shit! <laughs> two months. Basically, waking up every day, doing PT, getting yelled at, and then cleaning for two months till I got into AIT. Finally got into AIT. Learned a shit ton about doing fire direction control, which is what my job, what my actual job was, uh, outside of that fancy title. And it's basically, they have a big computer called an AFATADS, and you, the forward observer for an artillery uh, unit, he's the guy who's out like with infantry. 
and calls in artillery strikes, he would call back to the FDC, Fire Direction Control, tell them where he wants rounds and then what kind of rounds and how many. And we would go – we would do some manual gunnery, which basically means doing it like manually, drawing out the graph, doing the math, and then you have the FATAD's computer, and you'd put input some stuff. Uh, do some checks for safety to make sure you're not going to shoot out like uh, an area you're not supposed to. And then once all that comes back, you verify all the information is good. You verify where you want it to shoot, the charge that's going to be behind the round, and then you call it down to the gun line, and then they load it up and fire it. And so that's what I learned to do in AIT, even though I never actually got to do it in AIT. Like I, We practiced, but we never got to shoot artillery. And so January of 2000, so I graduated that honor grad in December of 2006 and went to my unit in January 2007, got to my unit. They were in what's called JRTC, which is basically a big training event before going on deployment. And normally you do JRTC down in Louisiana, but because they were because they got called on deployment so quickly because the surge is about to happen. They brought GRTC to Fort Lewis and did the training there. And so I got there and we were like running around on Fort Lewis with M4s and like in full battle rattle, like playing catch the Haji, like <laughs> running through traffic on Fort Lewis in the middle of the day, like firing blanks at shit. It was crazy, but it was fun. Anyway, I learned a lot, but, but, but I, I digress. So like I got there and they're like, yeah, so all our artillery shit you just learned, just don't, just you need to forget it because you're an infantryman. I was like, oh, all right, cool. And basically from that point on for the next four months, I just learned how to kick doors down and got and learned rifle marksmanship. I went to squad designated marksman school or squad designated marksman school, SDM school, and basically learned how to shoot further away with the standard weapons and fours and stuff. Uh, I don't think I did any other schools right then, but – April came around and I deployed for the first time and we went to Rashidia, Iraq, which is north of Baghdad, about 30 minutes. That was my, that was the start. That was the lead up to my first deployment. And for anyone that doesn't really know what's going on in this time in Iraq, uh, so basically in is it early? Is it 2000? I'm trying to think when we declared victory in Iraq. We declared victory, I think, in 2000 and. It was like the same year he went in, I think. I, I'm not sure. Let me. Uh, I'm gonna. I kind of want to know what that official date was. Uh, U.S. declares victory in Iraq. I don't remember either. Yeah, because in 2003 they, they, they changed the name of the war. Yeah. Because that. Um, because uh, they they we actually held Iraq for a while, and it actually wasn't. Uh, May first, two thousand three. We declared. Okay, we declared. so May first, two thousand three. So this is, oh man, when did we freaking invade? I think we invaded the same year. Like it was like we did, short. We, we did, and the war would have been over, but we can get into that argument later. But, uh, but yeah, but it's just like it's so crazy that uh, yeah. So this is two thousand six, <laughs> three years after we declare damn victory in Iraq, and uh, yeah, then the year you get sent there. But th I just want to kind of give people a time a time frame of a time reference of what's going on. So. We go to Iraq in 2003. We're there for God, May. Man, when the hell did we invade in there? I, I know it was in 2003. I'm pretty sure. And uh, so within a few months, we say, hey, we declared victory. It's three years later. We're still in victory status. 
And then some chaos starts a brewing, and uh, we have John McCain out there talking about the surge. And uh, the thing that uh, Brendan is talking about here, the reason his class size is so large is because they decided to actually do the surge between 2006 and 2007. Yep. Um, to try to – insurgents, we had the insurgents kind of you know, at bay, and then uh, suddenly a lot of Americans started dying again. The violence had dropped to you know, lower, a lower level, and then suddenly it just spiked in 2006, yep. and then they were just they – they needed every man possible to go to Iraq and try to help people out. Basically. Yeah, so like I went, I went April, and uh, let's see – we were in Rashidiya, and we were stationed on a big base called Taji. And then um, we ri- we did what's called a right seat ride, which is basically where you transition with a unit that's there, with a unit called uh, 137, which was our pretty much our sister unit from Fort Lewis. I was in 4th Brigade, 2nd ID, 212 Field Artillery. 137 was in 3rd Brigade, 2nd ID, and they were 137. And so we pretty much transitioned with them. And then uh, I think I earned my combat action badge the first month there. That basically means that you've seen combat. Like we got our first shootout within, God, I think it was three weeks of being there. And I got that. And then uh, so that whole stint in Rashidi was fun. I think most of that stint there was us driving around trying to find uh, – like we, we did a lot of talking to people. And we stay. We ended up staying at this one little, this thing called JSS, a Joint Security Station. It's basically a small little building that we stayed there with a bunch of an Iraqi Army company, and it ran missions out of it. And basically, we would wake up in the morning, grab chow, get our gear on, jump in the trucks, and then drive around all day and go talk to the different uh, sheiks around the around Rashidiya. Uh, they would tell us like where the bad people are. We'd go try to find them. We'd get shot at. We'd get blown up, and then we'd call a day and go back in. And we do that every <laughs> well, day. That sounds one hell of a day. Yeah. We so do, like, every day. go ahead. Sorry. So um, what? Uh, so I, I guess I never. I don't think I've ever asked you. Let's talk to you a lot about a little bit about being in Iraq. But uh, what was your opinion of like the Iraqi soldiers? Because I've had very mixed opinions from different people. Uh, most of them are pretty bad. <laughs> but yeah. uh, it, I'm guessing a lot of it has to do with the fact that United States military has been around since, you know, before 1776. We had militias and things. And then um, the Iraqi army literally just came out of nowhere, and he got a bunch of poor, impoverished people trying to jump at money that the United States had thrown at them. And the impression I have gotten is that they're not the best. But what kind of – have you ever seen some – have you had any interesting experiences with these Iraqi soldiers that <laughs> – Okay. So firstly, we'll go we'll go back a little ways and we'll we'll kind of start this little argument. But like, uh, it's not not argument, but this little my line of thinking. When Bush and Cheney and whoever else up the top decided to get rid of the Iraqi army commanders and or pretty much disband the Iraqi army, that's when the insurgency started because you sent a bunch of people home who pissed off because they had no money and no job now and let them keep their guns. Therefore, the Iraqi insurgency started. And then when they wanted to create the Iraqi army again, they basically brought in a bunch of kids who had no idea what they were doing. And basically when they shoot guns, they close their eyes and pray to Allah that the bullets are going to hit. So it was just – it was insane. They just had no training. And so some funny experiences I had with Iraqi army soldiers 
something happened uh, a little later in that first deployment when we had went to another place I'll talk about shortly. But we were clearing a building. Uh, me, uh, I was downstairs. My buddy Scott was upstairs, and I can't remember who else was up there. Uh, and we had a Iraqi army platoon with us. And all of a sudden, I hear Scott like screaming and yelling, and runs downstairs with an Iraqi army soldier. Like he's got him by like the scruff of his uniform, and like throws him outside. And basically, the guy had like tried. He cleared a room with an RPG on his shoulder, like. What like what was this guy gonna do if there was someone <laughs> in that room gonna We're, shoot at him? Right, He's so gonna people, shoot this people don't know what clearing a room is. It's where you do kind of like a SWAT team style invasion of a room, and everyone quickly assesses the situation and, and is is fucking ready to shoot shit. And this man has an RPG on his back. <laughs> yeah, he has an RPG on his shoulder. And like, what what is this guy gonna do if there's someone in that room? Is he gonna squeeze this trigger and then blow everyone up? <laughs> and yeah, so that sounds like a terrible decision. <laughs> We pretty much banned them from having RPGs around us after that. It was it was insane. And then another time, so this was also a little later in that deployment. My squad, we were sleeping up in our squad room, uh, and this is a ways north, uh, further north in a city called Bakuba. And uh, we're all sleeping in our squad room, and all of a sudden there's this huge fucking explosion. We're like what? It blows our plywood and our sandbags off our window. We're like, what the fuck? And like, we all set up, and we're like, uh, we're not on QRF today. Fuck that shit. And we all lay back down and try to go back to sleep. And eventually, our our squad leader comes up and goes, "What the fuck are you guys doing? Get up!" And so we all get up and we put our gear on and we jump in our truck. Or no, we don't jump in our trucks. First thing, jump in their trucks. We all get up. We throw our gear on, and we're like, th- this explosion happened about 500 meters north of us. So, like, we stayed in what's called a J-COP, a Joint Combat Outpost, basically the same thing as JSS. We just, it was this different name. And uh, it, our little J-COP was like a burnout school building that we lived in, and then the Iraqi Army Company lived in as well. And so this explosion happened, like, 500 meters north of the J-COP along this big uh, road. I think the road was, I think we called it Victory. And... Uh, so like we're like oh shit okay we're gonna go up this road and see this explosion see what happened and assess situation. So we grab an Iraqi army platoon and we take off running up the road like up like our road from our Jacob to this big this victory is a big dirt road, and so we take off running up it, and like you know it's about 500 meters so that's a big distance I mean and we're in full gear and everything, and so we're running and you know we we just do it. And like we get almost to the vict- we get almost a victory, and we turn around, and this entire Iraqi army platoon is like 300 meters behind us still, like just sucking wind. Like they were like, what the fuck? We're like, we're wearing 100 pounds of gear, and these guys are wearing plate carriers. Some of them with no plates, and they're carrying like one or two mags. I'm carrying a saw with like 1,200 rounds, plus like my vest, a lock breaking kit, my full uniform, my helmet. I weigh like at the time, I'm 190 pounds, and with my full gear, I'm like 280, and I just almost sprinted 500 meters, and these Iraqi army guys who were weighing like a buck 30 with 10 pounds of gear on couldn't even make it a third of the way. It was they're just they're insanely undertrained and not not worthy at the well, time. They might be better now. I think a lot of the people in countries like Iraq or Africa, in the different poor countries in Africa, China. If you come from a non-affluent country, the whole idea of even 
exercising to increase your uh, ability. I don't, I don't think that idea exists there really because they barely, you know, when they're on subsistence, they're not into wasting energy. You're probably, yeah, you're probably right. They I probably don't have that concept of like working out to get strong because that would require an excess of stuff. And they, I assume I'm making a lot of assumptions here because I am neither. I'm a white Westerner in the United States of America. But uh, my assumption is that they don't understand a lot of the science of, of exercise and working out. And um, if I, I think most of the time if they succeed, it's because of cultural accident or genetic ability. Like it's not it's it's not because they uh, like are really thinking about it, you know. Uh, yeah. But that's why a lot of like sports and stuff develop in different countries to make people like more physically active. But if you're not like enrolled in any of that, if your if your society doesn't really do that, or really have a concept of how of muscle building or strength training or cardiovascular work, you're just gonna do the minimum you have to do to survive, because there's there's not a lot of food available really. So if you're gonna waste a bunch of energy lifting things, running all that stuff, it's probably not a good idea. So my guess is. It's completely throwing it out there that culturally, because of the lack of resources, they have never went out of their way to train for yeah, anything. Yeah, you're you're probably right there. And I'm not saying all Iraqi army soldiers are bad. We worked with a couple Iraqi army like special forces units who are basically like they're kind of like the equivalent of our Rangers. They're not quite as well trained as the army Rangers, but you know they're they they know their shit, and they were good. They could shoot. They could. They were athletic. And they were awesome to work with. They 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 were equi- they were really good to work with. And so when we would get to work with them, and we had to go back to a normal Iraqi army platoon, it was like fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Not all of them are bad. A lot of them are bad. But you just kind of deal with it when the situation arises and figure it out. That's basically how my whole deployment was: just dealing with it. <laughs> So, so you went in 2006, right? Or no, is this 2000? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So this, no, 2007. 2007. 2007. So this is like summer 2007? Yep, yep. Okay, so you went in summer 2007, heart of the surge. And then, what, you go back to Washington for a while? Yeah, so I, my deployment starts April 2007. We're in Rashidia for like six months, and then we go to Bakuba for the rest of the deployment. The, the, and that whole deployment lasted 15 months about. And then we go back to Washington after the deployment. And uh, that is in God was it July of 2008? I think we got back something like that. So yeah, and we're back in Washington. And at that point, I'm 20. I'm 20 now. And basically, it was just I think we had three months there where we like so we get back in July. We get like 30 days off. We get to go home, chill, relax. We come back. We kind of start cleaning gear kind of figure out our training plan for the next year. You know, we're, we're starting to talk about training in artillery again, which is cool because I wanted to shoot some artillery. And then about a month after that, so we're, we go on leave for a month, we come back for a month, and about a month after that, they're like, hey, get ready for deployment again. And we're like, are you fuck? We just got back. They're like, yeah, so you're going to deploy again and your unit's fenced. So pretty much everyone who is trying to leave to go to another unit, you're staying now, and you're stop-lost. And so we're like, all right, well, let's prep for deployment. And so we got to shoot, we got to train a little bit of artillery in that point, and I, and I got to actually go to a couple advanced artillery schools, and I got to uh, be a squad leader for our, our artillery section for a little while. 
Uh, I also went to a few other schools during that. I went to what's called Raven School. I learned how to fly these little remote UAVs with like this fucking hundred thousand dollar camera on the front. That was cool until I lost a couple because they flew away. <laughs> uh, I got to go to that. I, I got to go to some advanced uh, artillery schools. I got to go to what's called unmanned ground surveillance school, which is basically another recon, like a recon type school. Uh, I went to a few uh, first aid schools and first responder classes or schools. I, I basically got to learn a ton of shit between my first and second deployment that I didn't get to learn be- before the first one because we deployed so fast. And then uh, second deployment rolled up around – god, I, oh, we went to Louisiana first for JRTC, and that was cool. I got to learn how to call in like uh, helicopter strikes and stuff during JRTC because I was my my, uh, my battery commander's uh, RTO, and I got to learn a few cool things doing that. The RTO, that's radio – Radio, radio operator. I don't know. I, I don't know yeah, what the fuck the it stands yeah, for. Uh, okay. Yeah, but anyway, they, they were on the radio. Yeah, we were just talking on the radio. Uh, I got to do that for a bit during JRTC. Uh, then deployment. I think deployment started in, I want to say, July or August. I can't remember exactly anymore of 2009. And I, you know, I had, I had my failed stand marriage, or I got married right there before that deployment to Chelsea. Oh, see, I never knew the time frame. Um, yeah, I got I got married to her, I think, a month before I deployed. You had yeah. Been, when was the last time you were in Iowa at this point? Uh, well, I had, I'd been coming home to see her and stuff pretty much for a while. Were you dating before about. you left? <laughs> no, no. Let's, oh, let's, not, let's not go too deep. Let's not go too deep. <laughs> All right, we're going to leave that subject alone. Just know that uh, this is very common in the military. <laughs> Things happen. No, we had, we had been like we got married like I think a month. It might have been a little more than a month before that appointment. But like we had been talking for I don't know, probably like five months or so, and like seeing each other and dating. It wasn't very long at all. It was very rushed and stupid decision on my part, and a lot of soldiers make that stupid decision. But I did it for reasons I'd rather not talk about. But uh, so second appointment starts. And I'm like, I'm thinking I'm going to get to shoot artillery the second deployment. I had been training in it. I pretty much had my own squad. Uh, I was only, I was still only an E4, but I was probably the second best artilleryman, like FTC guy in our unit. So I thought I was going to get to shoot some artillery. And I get to Iraq. We, half our unit is on victory base camp. The other half is on uh, this, uh, this little uh, outpost, this artillery outpost. And the when the half that goes to the outpost goes out there, I go out there with them, thinking I'm gonna go lead one of the FTC units. And I get out there, and our first sergeant's out there. He's like, "What the fuck are you doing out here, good?" And I'm like, "What do you What do you mean, top?" I'm like, "I'm gonna do FTC." He's like, "No, nah, bitch, you're not gonna do FTC. You're gonna go back and be. You're gonna work in our uh, our training room and be my training room, bitch." And I basically threw a fit because I did not want to go to headquarters. I did not want to be in the training room. I mean, I had trained artillery. I'd been an infantry guy. I was like, I'm not doing paperwork, and basically he put his foot down and made me go back with him. So for many people out there that are not in the military, uh, there is a huge amount of shit talk between the people that actually stay on base, stay in an office. Not that the work doesn't need to be done. The work needs to be done, but you are definitely shamed by the rest of your unit, the people that actually go out in the field and get shot at or do stuff that sucks ass. Yeah. It's just you get shamed, especially if an infantry unit. It's the worst. Yep. You even are legitimately hurt yourself or are sick. Oh, dude, you're still going to get shamed. 
But so I come back to the unit or to the base and they put me in the training room. And basically they put me in the training room because they knew I could do some computers and I was decently smart. I was much smarter than pretty much everyone else in the unit next to the officers. And so they're like, you're going to do paperwork. And so I'm in the training room like one day and I'm trying to figure out this paperwork situation. And my buddy Shaw, Berkner, and Sergeant Rayner are on the other side of the training room and they are working in the the – so uh, to make this easy to understand, I'm d- – our office is the training room, and but on one side of the training room is basically the CP, which is where the radios are, where the map is, and where when, when our units are going out on patrol and when they're shooting artillery, the CP is talking to those units. The control, the CP stands for what? Command post. Command post. Yeah. So they're like talking to the units, they're mapping stuff, and the, Shaw and Berkner are also doing coit, what's called coist, which is company something or another intelligence cell. They're like, they, they were working intelligence at a company level, a battery level. And so like they were reading reports and doing analysis and briefings for units going out. And about six hours into me working in the training room, I realized these motherfuckers don't know how to work a radio. They don't know how to talk on a radio. Shaw or Rainer had never deployed. And so they weren't really, understanding of the Iraqis. Berkner deployed, but he'd have been a headquarters bitch the entire first deployment, so all he did was sit in, a, in the in the CP himself. So I was like, what are you, I, like, at one point, I'm like doing paperwork, and I look over, and they're like trying to talk on the radio, and like they're not understanding what's going on. So I'm like, give me the fucking radio. And so I talk to it, and I map some stuff out, and I let the guys know what's going on. And then afterwards, I'm like, how about this? Shaw, you had been the training room guy before deployment. Why don't you take over the, what I was just doing and let me do this because I know what I'm doing. And we go talk to First Sergeant, and First Sergeant's like, if you guys want to do that, go for it. And I basically took over the COIS, the intelligence part, and the CP. And I kicked Berkner to the night shift, and Sergeant Rayner pretty much just stood around and played video games on a computer in the other room all day because I didn't want him over there because I didn't really like him. And I ran the CP during the day, and then the night shift had like three guys. And so at that point, I pretty much on the fly learned how to do the intelligence stuff. Like Sean Berkner had went to Coist school for like I think six months, and I pretty much just learned it on the fly for like a month and just took it over. I ended up being really good at that. Uh, I would like – I would give briefings to our units when they'd go on patrols. You know, I would tell them what's going on. Uh, they would take me out, and I would talk with the Iraqi, uh, like the Iraqi citizens, and try to find out where stuff was going down at. I got to sit in on a couple like interrogations and ask some questions. Uh, when the I got to go brief our, our when we got a new battalion commander about halfway through that deployment, I got to actually go give him the unit intelligence brief. They picked me to do it over the intelligence, the actual intelligence guys, just because I was so well spoken. During the briefs, like I knew what I was talking about because I had studied it up to, like every day I was in the offices studying the stuff and reading the reports. And so I knew what I was talking about. And so they let me do the briefings for the battalion commander. Uh, our brigade commander actually came around a couple times and let me, and I briefed him uh, before he would roll out on patrol with us. And he gave me a couple of compliments on how good my briefs were and that I was pretty knowledgeable in the situation and what's going on. Uh, I got to make some pretty cool analysis. Then we actually caught. A few high-value targets off of some assumptions that I made. Like we were getting mortared a lot, and there was this area that we couldn't really go into. 
and we kind of me and our, my battery commander kind of we had seen where like the, the poos were the point of origin for the mortar attacks and we kind of made some assumptions of where we thought uh, that they were running and hiding after they would shoot the mortars and ended up we being right and we caught a couple high value targets doing that stuff and a few, and we caught a couple others doing some other things uh, but it was it was fun second point was a blast just in term like working in the training room I hated but actually getting working in the CP and doing the like getting to see the big picture other not like first one I was just a door kicker and I seen the small picture I they tell us who to go grab and we'd go do it or whatever and second point I got to see the big picture why we were gonna go get people who like who the big who the big insurgent cells were and all that so it was, it was really interesting going from a small picture to a big picture and and like just did, that did transition it help you, uh, appreciate any of it more because. Uh... I don't know. I'm just a very curious, independent person. Uh, I think you are as well. It's very difficult for me to just like do. Hey, do this thing. Why? Doesn't matter why. Go do the thing. Like that's the way the army set yeah. up, and I I get very frustrated very easily with that kind of mentality. No, yeah, it helped me a lot more. Yeah, it, it made me. So like my uh, my battery commander, like he pretty much let me sit on any briefings he sat on him he sat on so i got to learn a lot of why we were doing the things and it helped me understand it a lot more and and like respect like the decisions that were being made at the top like sometimes they were bad decisions i didn't agree with but it helped me understand that why they're making the decisions when i was just kicking the door down i thought this shit like sure this is fun i'm gonna go raid this house but like this shit is stupid like this guy this makes no sense we're grabbing this guy but when like i was the one sitting in those briefs learning why we're grabbing that guy because he has intelligence on the guy we're really going after, it made a lot more sense. So I liked it a lot more. Oh, okay. So then you, I guess you appreciate it a little bit more. Maybe you don't get as uh, jaded about why you're doing things that seem insequential, yeah. you know, at the time. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so some other things I kind of want, I'm interested in. So, like, uh, this is stuff, like, unless you've actually been to Iraq, no one would ever really know this. So how were, were your interactions with the Iraqis? Were they... They, were they just like Americans? Were they nice to you? Were they – I don't know. I guess I'd, I'd, I've never been to Iraq. I've only been to so, one other country, so I don't know too much about it. But like what was your impression that, of them? You know, Because there's a lot of disdain for Muslims or Iraqis or all this stuff in the United States right now. Is it warranted? Is it not? I mean what, what, uh, what did you see out there? So me and Emma kind of had this talk a little bit one night when I was a little bit drunk. I have absolutely no – disdain for most muslims or most iraqis you know for the and i understand the reason a lot of them were fighting the insurgency like doing the insert like why they were fighting against us because like we we're on their home like we we're in their land and like raiding their buildings and stuff i understand why like if someone was if like russia or any other country came to the united states and was doing that i'm assuming most of us would like be joined in insurgency and fight against them so i kind of understand what like their angle while and while i still understand it doesn't mean i wasn't gonna fight it but so like talking to iraqis they're they're kind of like americans in a sense like they're nice like to your face and a lot of them <laughs> a lot of a face. lot of them, a lot of them are nice anyways and like they understand why we're there and they're good people and then, like talking to the sheikhs and stuff, the sheikhs, they they're nice to your face, 
And the ones who really want to help Iraq, they were nice all around. But then a lot of them are just out to make them out to make money, get so money from the Americans. They're like and a so, politician, like any politician. They're like a politician. To. They would talk to us and tell us what we wanted to hear, and then we'd leave, and they'd call uh, you know, t- terrorists, uh, the insurgent down the street, and tell them what we just talked about, and you know, and set up plans to try to blow us Fucking up and stuff. Politicians. So you know, a lot were good, a lot were bad. It was it's kind of the mix of the same you know anywhere else in the world. You got your good and your bad. But I don't know. I, I I still like Iraqi people as a whole. A lot of them were good. I don't I don't know. I mean, I think at one point in history they were the uh, top of the world as far as um, science, math. Oh yeah. Everything like that was like the center of the world at one point. Um, yeah, and like yeah, yeah. Early when fucking. Europeans are out there pushing mud around in the fucking swamps of England, <laughs> yep. 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 fighting yep. dumbass yep. wars with each other. <laughs> Pretty much swinging clubs. But like doing the intelligence stuff also helped me learn a lot, like about the Iraqis and like why they were doing. Like, like I read reports of like of like when like uh, the actual intelligence guys would go and talk to someone, and like I get to read like the transcripts of the interrogation and find out like this guy's just like he joined the insurgency because. They were offering him food and stuff for his family, so I got to see a little bit of that side of why they were doing it. Basically, the same reason I think a lot of people would like do stuff like join the insurgency or whatnot, or like they're almost being blackmailed to a sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen um, a bunch of different stories about how they kidnap some guy's kid and they say, "Hey, you better go blow up some Americans and take a video of it and show it to us, or we're gonna kill your kid, or they offer them money, or I mean, there's like hundreds of different." you know, reasons when you're in a desperate situation why you it's almost like being in a gang in the United States. Yeah, yeah. It's like, look, I'm in a desperate situation. I got a couple options. This one's probably the easiest option I have that has the highest likelihood of immediately mm-hmm. getting it like long term it's a bad decision, but in the short term it seems like a great decision. No, uh, yeah. It, yeah, I agree. But whoops shit. Okay, sorry. Can you still <laughs> hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can still hear. Did you hear that beep? Heard zero beeps. Oh, okay. I was trying to fucking record this too, but I think I just fucked it up, so I'm not recording I'll anymore. I'll copy it when we're done. It's fine. All right. Cool. Cool. But uh, all right. What else? Uh, I all right. To... So, so I know you. All right. I know you're a veteran, a combat veteran. But another thing I think that's very interesting about you is that. So I'm not sure when this started for you. I know we used to play a lot of video games in high school. But then later, I know you did a few tournaments and started getting a little real, real competitive, especially with like Counter Strike and League of Legends. So how did that how did that all start? Because I know like you had like a team, you know, all these guys all around the country. Uh, how did that begin? How did you get into that? So okay, so you know, back in high school, we all we started playing Counter Strike in Miss Elliott's class at Central Campus, and start when I started playing it, I was terrible at that game, and then uh, I don't know, I just kept playing it, and uh, Tony. Uh, got me in playing with uh, uh, these guys. I can't remember what that unit, that little, that little gaming clan was called anymore. Uh, but I started playing with them. Oh and, shit! Uh, they had like a website. Yeah, I, I don't yeah, know what yeah, you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, go on. But we started playing with them, and uh, you know, at the time it was just casual. Like you'd play Counter Strike and you'd do like uh, the casual server, like 10 v 10 and stuff. And then I started learning about. The, the the more competitive side of it and scrimming playing 5v5s and uh i learned about what was at the time it was uh oh what was that shit called 
it was a big league at the time, uh, Cal Cyber Athletics League, and they uh, they held Counter Strike uh, like pretty much tournaments or like seasons and stuff. And I played like my first Cal season. I don't know. I think it was my early early senior year of high school, maybe that the summer before that. I did terrible. I wasn't very good at the game at all yet, you know. And the, like, it was playing with guys uh, that Tony had introduced me to, and we we got our asses kicked all season. I think we won like two games out of like sixteen. Uh, then you know I got I started getting a little better because I was playing all. I was coming home from school just playing nonstop. And then uh, about I think January of 2006, so about the time I also decided I wanted to join the army, I joined another group. Uh, I, I, it was like a small team uh, called Savage, and we played uh, in the Cal, in Cal as well as TWL, which is like a little lesser league, but it gave us practice, and we did really good. Uh, we didn't we didn't win the season, so we didn't move up to the next league. Like Cal goes open league, and then IM, which is like intermediate, uh, and then main, and I think the next one up was invite, which is where the pro teams play. So we we did okay in open league. Uh, we didn't win anything. But I got way better playing that. I was practicing all the time. This is all Counter-Strike. This is pretty much the only game I played at the time was Counter-Strike. Uh, about three months before my second, before I, I went to the Army, uh, I joined – I, I was still on Savage, and I ended up – started playing with these guys called – uh, a team called VOA. Uh, they were a little bit older. Their team name was Veterans of America. They had a couple of veterans on there. Uh, and we played uh, in Cal as well. And we ended up winning open, and move, the team moved up to IM, and everyone on that team was extremely good. And I was extremely good at that. I, I was good, not extremely good. Uh, and then I went to I went to the army and went to Iraq, and so I didn't play. As, I didn't get to really play that much. Uh, between my first and second deployments, I I got back into Counter Strike, and we I pretty much played on a couple teams. We went to a couple tournaments up in Seattle. Uh, won a couple tournaments. Uh, for some money, not not a lot, but a decent little amount. Uh, I got I, I was just getting really good at Counter Strike, and I really loved it. Uh, and then second deployment happened again, and my second deployment happened that time, so I had to go on that. Uh, came back from that, got out of the army. Uh, was still playing Counter Strike a bit, still competitive with it, not playing too many tournaments, occasional like little land tournaments and stuff. And then I got introduced to League of Legends from pretty much you and everyone else. I hated it at first. I said I would never play this fucking game, and then I came, I tried it again, and I got super addicted to it, and I got pretty good at it pretty quickly. I went we – I remember playing – when I first started playing ranked, it was like the end of season two in League of Legends, and I placed bronze in ranked, and in the next season, I hit platinum one, and the season right, after so that – so- Platinum. Okay, how many rent, how many uh, different levels are there of League of Legends for these tournaments? So, okay, so you got bronze. Okay, no, okay, so this is just ranked play on like this is just like ranked casual, like ranked play. Like uh, I'm sitting at home playing with random other people. Well, you say it's so, casual, except for I get, if I get my ass on there on the lowest level, yeah, my ass no, would be stomped. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so <laughs> in, in ranked, there's bronze, silver, gold, platinum, diamond, and now they have challenge, master, and challenger. But in each of those, there's there's five levels. So like there's bronze one through five, with one being the highest, and then silver one through five, gold one through five, platinum one through five, and so on and so up. And so my first time, I, first season of ranked I played, I placed like bronze one. I was terrible. 
and then I played a, I just kept playing, and in the next season I got the platinum one. So it was a huge transition between that when I first started to right there. And at platinum one, I was like, okay, I'm pretty good at this game. I want to start playing it comp- like competitively. And so myself, uh, a few guys that I know out in Chicago, uh, and then uh, and then it was kind of like I played with those guys, and then another group, another couple people, and then I also had the group that I talked to and played with most of the time, which was Skelly and Smile, which you know them. Kind oh, okay, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This group we used to and, play with online, just do ran- play your random games with. Yep. Yeah, and there was a few other of us. We had a small team, and basically we just started playing in small tournaments, and winning a little bit of money. Not doing great ever. Like we did okay. We won. We won one tournament, which was really cool uh, out in Chicago. Uh, and that got a we. That was about five thousand dollars. We we took a thousand apiece, pretty much. Damn! I actually didn't even know you got that far into it. Yeah, we we were playing and I was going to tournaments pretty much every other week at one point and we'd lose a lot, but you know, occasionally we do really good. Uh, we got to play against a couple, t- like, uh, there's like a couple players. I can't remember their names now. They're, they went on to play like in LCS, which is like, uh, the league of legends championship series that riot sponsors or does. And we got to see him play against a couple of those out in Chicago one. So that was a pretty cool experience. So for people that don't know this game, the league of, so both these games that Brendan is talking about right now, Counter-Strike and League of Legends are probably, would you say that the top two most, uh, the biggest eSport competitive games? I think they are. Like, maybe think, StarCraft, maybe StarCraft throw that in there? Uh, StarCraft, yeah, I think League But I think League and Counter-Strike, the biggest, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they take the prize. So I'm trying to uh, look up right now. So in South Korea, they have this thing, because the League of Legends World Championship. And, yep. dude, what the hell do you win if you win this goddamn thing? I mean, it's, like, if, ridiculous. If, if, if you win worlds, I think it's like uh, a couple million dollars. Dude, it's it's dumb. You think like these esports are like some bullshit nerds, dude? Well, there's some bullshit ass nerds making like a million fucking no, dollars, fuck. bro. Well, <laughs> like, and if you, if you watch like, so I I don't watch it as much anymore. I don't I don't play league as much, but like I still like watching uh, the tournaments and stuff online. And like, so when people like compare like when like I like uh, who is that guy? Fucking guy on ESPN, Colin Cowherd. I hate that dude. Because he like just ba- bash Colin Cowherd <laughs> bashes on esports and like calls a bunch of people fat nerds and stuff. Like if you go and watch these tournaments, sure, there's a couple little fatter guys in there, and there's a couple like skinny little nerdy looking guys. But most of them just look like average dudes. I love playing video games and being competitive in video games. And I, I mean, I, for a little while, I got the little little fat. But I, but I'm a pretty healthy guy. I work out now and all kinds of shit. Well, when I, I read about some uh, top players of different video games um they about do exercise a ton but they'll go like run like a couple yeah. times a day like they'll literally play like nine hours a day but in the middle they'll go run like two miles no yeah exactly which I is mean, better than most fucking americans so exactly. i mean i'm not exactly. saying it's the healthiest thing in the world but i mean it's better than a lot of people i'm trying to look up what the uh what the prize is because i want people to like have an idea of how dumb this okay. shit is 2.13 fucking million in 2014 Okay, that's for that's for league, but for like Dota and the international, it's like twenty million. Dude, no fucking way. This is a trophy. Yeah. This is like mind blowing. Twenty million dollar roo. This is a, and then uh oh, what year was it they did it at the South Korea's Olympic Stadium? So one year, this League of Legends oh, game that Brendan played. Not, not not this year, but last year. I think. Last year they have it in uh, South Korea's Olympic Stadium. How many people can go in that? How big is that uh, motherfucker? A, a lot of people. I don't know the exact size, but there's a lot of people went. It was insane. I watched it online. It was cool. Dude, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I, I gotta know, cause it's like some atrocious amount. 
<laughs> and there's like like other millions of people watching this online. Oh man, I think I think Worlds every year since like season three has had it more. It not it's either had the same, if not more, as like the World Series in terms of viewers. So if anyone thinks this whole esport thing is bullshit, I yeah. mean they literally filled this. Okay, so. 40,000 people go to this game, right? This is the yep. uh, one of the old stadiums used for uh, when South Korea had the Olympics years ago. And they fill it with a bunch of fucking nerds. <laughs> the I think the at Worlds of like season two, so this was I think 2013 or something, 2012, they, they sold out Staples Center in – is that L.A.? Yeah, it's in L.A. Staples Center. Okay, so this says – let's see, what year is this? 2014, 2014, 32 million people watched this shit live. How many yeah, people watched the what? Super Bowl? I know it's a lot. Exactly. I don't know, oh. man. This might be competing. Oh, I don't think it competes in the Super Bowl quite yet. I mean, football is America's sport, but I mean, it's still a lot of people. So pretty much with that, fuck Colin Cowherd and his opinions. <laughs> So okay, okay, okay. So it's it's still like way lower than Super. Holy shit, Super. 114 million people watched Super last. Uh, yeah. 14. Yeah. Damn, son, that's a lot of motherfucking people. But still, this shit is impressive. That's why, like, even the. So Brendan, it doesn't do that many crazy tournaments or anything. But you win five grand. That's still like. That's a lot of. No, yeah. Money. It, I ain't winning that playing cool. flag football, getting my ass kicked. It, it's still cool. Yeah, you know, you get the. And not many people can say they've went and like played video games competitively. Like I, I'm not like I'm not great. Like I played in, in, in small tournaments. You know I'm not these guys who go play in worlds or anything. But you know I've well, I've done getting, enough. When you got this much money up for grabs, man, people get competitive. Oh like, yeah, I mean those those teams that are playing are playing with like they're on the teams are owned by huge organizations who like buy them like team houses and supply them with food and shit all day like it's, and like they live the game all day long so and they don't have to do anything it's else. It's a full-time job. It's just yeah, I, it's I, just I, I was I was playing these tournaments and going to school at the same time and stuff. So, you know, I was I just think yeah. it's just amazing cuz I don't think a lot of people appreciate how I, I did a couple Halo tournaments back in the day and got my ass stomped on. And that was in a yeah. local tournament in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> got my ass stomped. Sorry, Marvin Harris. <laughs> <laughs> I know I let you down. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I, I didn't realize how – like this is not to toot my own horn. I didn't realize how good like I got it, like Counter-Strike until I had went and started playing with some guys who uh, – they had played in a couple tournaments and they had did okay, not great or anything. But like I jumped on and like I like uh, – I was a ringer for them. Like they needed an extra per- – they needed a person because one of the guys going to play and so I went and played with them. And I absolutely dominated that entire tournament. Like I was like the top – fragging like uh when a fragging counter strikes a kill i was like the top fragging person in the entire tournament it's hard to realize in your own little circle like i um i remember one time when i used to play halo i went to my cousin's uh friend's house all all the guys who played football at east high they're a couple years older than me and they all want to play halo and they're like oh we play all the time we're really good i walked up in there and just fucking marked them (laughs) one man army just dead 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 like do you guys play halo or what bro and i'm like the worst person that plays at all the people i play with uh, back when we used to play Halo all the time, we used to play these guys that went to tournaments and stuff. I'm like the worst one. I mean, or, or maybe somewhere in the middle, you know. I'm definitely yeah. not the best one, and I'm just murking them like fucking ten on one. Doesn't matter. They're just that bad, dude. And they think yeah. they're good, and yeah. I'm bad. 
Yep, that was basically how some of those tournaments went. <laughs> yeah, dude. It, you just never know. I mean, and the, God, the world's so fucking big now. Like, being good at something is just getting harder and harder to be every damn year with the uh, the internet spreading out there. And, like, people can try to learn, learn anything. You can play against some guy in China, India, Japan, yeah. fucking Toronto. Like, it's it's so easy to do and you can like specialize so much now with different things. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah. Now I'm getting older though. So I don't think I can be as good at video games anymore. I don't have enough time. Like I play against like, I've been playing overwatch the last few days and like those God, man, some of these kids that are on their plan, like it's crazy how good they are. Well, like, but that, they have all day to play. I have, like, a few hours at night. Have you if, seen these studies that... where they, they look at uh, the average age of the competitive video game players, and because the reaction time is so – takes so much skill, like, to, so, like the reaction time is so much better for younger people that it tends to weed people out by the time they're, like, 30. So, like, I understand that, and I think if I ha- still had the time to play as much, I could be as good as those kids who are playing with the fast reflexes. Just because I played so much, I have – the game sense like i might not have the reflexes of an 18 year old who's like at the top of his game like your playing. knowledge might overpower but them. my my knowledge might like in terms of counter-strike maybe like the angles i'll maybe have to switch up some angles i'd hold like in certain maps but i think i could win in the game sense wise You'd peyton manning these motherfuckers i'll peyton manning these motherfuckers. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tom brady peyton manning these motherfuckers yeah yeah, yeah. you're like oh what? i'm 40 years old guess what i'm the fucking best bitch yeah yeah <laughs> so i don't know uh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, Tom Brady's still in fucking awesome shape. I was watching a couple of interviews the other day uh, where they were talking to people that played with him, and they'd go to parties in, like during the off season, like like six months out from actually getting you know camp, like right after the season ends. And they go to a party and they're having a few beers and they're like, "Hey man, you you want a beer?" And he's like, "Oh no, I'm training." Yeah. Fucking Tom Brady, quit being so fucking good. He's he's a he's an awesome football football player and he's a handsome son of a bitch, man. I'm just saying. Get the fuck out of here, Tom Brady. I'm tired of your bullshit. I hope tired of your bullshit. Oh man, I yeah, I don't know. I I I want the Patriots to win. I like Tom Brady. He's a beast. Yeah, I mean it's hard to you know you hate on success. You kind of don't want him to win just because you want the underdog to get them some. But I mean if a man's gonna work that goddamn hard. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He's already and he's obviously talented from the start. He wasn't one of the top draft picks. He's got a fucking chip on the shoulder, and he is all about proving everyone wrong. He wants to be the best. And, That's why uh, I like him. They they suspended him four games at the start of the season. He just came back and dominated everybody. Him. He's like, oh, really? Oh, you go ahead and double-check my balls while I fucking chuck yeah. your dumb, dude. <laughs> fucking God, they're just murking him this year. What's the, I'm going to look at the Patriots record right now. What the fuck's Patriots record? It's pretty good. Uh, I think they lost two games, maybe three. I'm not sure. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so they have oh two losses. That is not yeah. bad. Who the fuck did they lose to? Let me see. They, they lost once in the first four games. I think the second game, and then Tom Brady lost one game. So da, 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 da. I, I just I just want to know now who they lost to. Win win loss. They lost the Seahawks. Well, Seahawks are fucking good. They they lost by one touchdown. So yeah yeah, yeah. Hey, all right. At least it's the Seahawks. You know they're pretty good. And yep. where's their other loss at? This uh, Google is not helping me out here. Where the fudge is there? Oh. It was at the beginning of the season, I think. Hmm. Anyway, Google's not showing me right now. Uh, I do not see another loss on here. It says they have two losses. That's oh, all well. We'll just accept it. The thing is, Patriots are fucking good. They have good people yeah. on their team, and they're all about – you know what I think it is? Is like what they have like a, a mentality there all about like they're so obsessed with winning that – 
even though they have these great players, you see their their second and third string people step up so well. Dude, winning's all that matters. I, I, yeah, I, will I stick, think they really have that, that. They must have that actual like winning is all that matters concept down because some teams and some sports and some athletes don't have that idea. You know. I, yeah, I will stick to that because like when I'm playing video games, the like Counter Strike League, Overwatch now, like if I'm not winning, I'm not having fun. Like if I lose a game, I am pissed and I'm in a bad mood. I do not want to lose. Like winning is all that counts to me. I don't care how I win. If I play bad, but my team my team takes the win, I am ecstatic. I just that's all I want is the win. That's just I don't know. That's how I am. So I'm guessing they built some sort of really good culture there with that. Uh, because there, there's no way that the Patriots could be that good for so long without doing something like that. There's just no, no. way. No. Uh, yeah, they, they just. I mean, with Tom Brady there, Bill Belichick, oh, they just they have to have that mentality. I guess they built it into the franchise. I have never seen them be more than you know average in like. But well, offense they have they've had Tom Brady for years. So their offense has always been awesome. Their defense has always been at least okay, and then just gets better year after year. It goes drops yeah. down for a while. It's still like in the middle ranks. I'm like, dude, how do these guys yeah. not suck? You got Cleveland out there for years and years and years getting top draft picks and just eating ass. Yeah, I feel bad for the. I, I always feel bad for the number one draft pick of the, of the NFL because you just know he's going to the Browns and his career just went to shit. <laughs> God, dude, it's just like I don't. How can you suck for so long? Like they yep. switch the coaches out, they switch the players out. Fucking the mistake by the lake. The I'm mistake like, by the lake. There's a guy I work with. He calls it the mistake by the lake. That's Cleveland I've, right there. I've, I've never heard that. I'm gonna text that to Drew later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Cleveland, man. And the thing is that Cleveland just. I mean, they, yeah, they. I'm, I'm glad they did something. I mean, sports is basically all they got left because the Rust Belt, yeah. man. Whew, I don't know the last time you drove through a Rust Belt city is. Uh, I've been to Milwaukee, you know, Milwaukee. Uh, when oh, I, see... I, I, I drove to Cleveland uh, this last summer. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but no, yeah. No, no, no. It's, to what it looks it's like. Not, it's not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so much abandoned shit everywhere. Yep. Uh, the entire Rust Belt, basically from Detroit around the lakes. Um, Chicago's recovered a little bit, uh, but that's just because it's such a big city that it can – withstand it but it still has large neighborhoods that are that are distraught it's just that it, the city is so big that it can have a neighborhood the size of fucking cleveland that's fucking yeah. destroyed in it um but you go to milwaukee cleveland even st louis is basically a rust belt city so like the only rust belt city that's really recovered uh, is like pittsburgh pittsburgh is a, a big manufacturing town but they have actually come to uh do a lot of tech stuff. Like they started yep. pivoting. They saw the industry was going down. They started pivoting. All these cities that decided they weren't going to do that got fucked. Pretty much. Pretty much. So I don't know what they're going to do here in the future, but uh, let's hope they come back, man. Let's hope this. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm pretty uh, nervous about this Trump character, but hey, man, if you can do good things, I'll vote for you. Fuck it. <laughs> yeah, I, I doubt I'm going to be voting for you next election, but hey. I, I don't think Trump's a dude very much. Trump, I don't think he's gonna do much, but I'm just gonna hold up, hold up hope because did, he's did the leader see, of my country and I gotta deal with it. So, did you see that like all the top like officials from the State Department resigned and left? Yeah, this last I just week? saw that a bunch of people resigned that were ambassadors and stuff that they said. Yeah, they man. Won't. I listened to NPR and they were like, uh, they were like, uh, oh yeah, well me and my husband and our two dogs, like, yep, definitely resigning. <laughs> my me. Trump's this yeah. dude says me and my husband immediately resigning. He's not a big fan of Trump. <laughs> yeah, like we're pulling out of like climate talks and stuff right now. This is ridiculous. God, 
Dude, I don't know if people understand how much is – like there's so much chaos going down. Like some of the things would be good, but I feel like there's just too much change. That I don't think you're really thinking about it. I read this article yesterday, and it was it was just a catchy – I think it was more lines of just a catchy like – there was a line in it, and I think it was the catchy like views and stuff. But it said like – it was an, amb- an ambassador. I can't remember who he was from. Oh, it was a UN ambassador, I think. said like it feels like the world is on the brink of war again. And it was just—it was crazy to read that. Oh yeah, you see, he's trying to. Uh, he said that uh, he's closing our borders down. No Muslims. I just read it. I literally just read it. Yeah, like an hour ago. I just seen that. Yeah. Uh, there's seven countries just banned from. Uh, people can't come here from like seven different countries. And yeah, on the one hand, I'm like, okay, yeah, I understand most of terrorism is going to come from these seven countries. But on the other hand, I felt bad for the people I know that have families that live there, that want to yeah. come visit them or want to have their families come visit them here. It's like we have a lot of immigrants from these countries that. Never gonna be able to see their uncle or their brother or whoever. The U.S. needs to be careful. Like we're like banning people from coming to the country, but like they need to be. Oh, I, I mean, I'm assuming the government's aware of it, but they need to acknowledge like homegrown terrorists and insurgencies. Wasn't wasn't us talking about like the like the most like like veterans could be like if they wanted to lead an insurgency oh, like the, the number one. Um risk of overthrowing the government like doing a coup like the cia was worried the most about disgruntled veterans yeah goddamn I mean, right because we could fucking Jesus. work together yeah like, i mean dude, we... i know how to shoot a gun and i'll fucking know how to work as a team so you better watch your ass bro <laughs> <laughs> oh man i don't know i just i don't think trump i don't know i was not a fan of this election yeah yeah i, I wasn't too much either i'm trying to like not be too hardcore because i see so much like I used to be like, man, I switched back and forth. You know, I used to be libertarian, then I was like a hardcore liberal. I don't know what to fucking decide anymore because it's so hard to actually decide what information out there is true, and it takes so much work to discover what is true. You know, like, yeah, I, I, I'm just a moderate. You might call me like uh, I, I sit on the fence, but like I like stuff from both sides, and so like I just I'm a moderate. Like I lean probably a little more liberal, but I do I do like. Some ideas from the Republican side, and I like some ideas from the Democrat side. Not well, some all of them, them are like because the thing is that with with uh, liberals, sometimes they really don't give a shit about the budget. Like they just don't. Even, yeah, no, yeah. It's exactly. like like at, at, at the end of the day, you only have so much money to spend. We have to decide how to spend it. And the other thing is with uh, the military, maybe the budget's too big, but acting like you want to just cut the shit out of it, we don't need one, is stupid. Like yeah, the military it does need downsized. It has to stay at a certain like level, but. What I don't even know what our budget for the military is right now, but it does not need to be oh, what it John is. John McCain just put something forward that he wants to increase it by like six hundred and something billion dollars. Uh, there's no bunch of shit. And here, here, well, the other thing that's frustrating is it's like, look, I'm I'm all for the military being big, but I mean big personnel wise, not necessarily big like we're spending lots of money because we're spending lots of stupid money. We're spending when I when I was in Iraq, they were they were hiring contractors, paying them a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. To do guard duty on like civilian do for thirty grand a year. Yeah, yeah. It's like, are you joking me? You pay me fucking pennies, and this I should be doing this job. Like yeah, he's doing so. the same thing I'm doing. You're paying him one hundred and fifty thousand. Like this is bullshit. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't want to get too much into the political stuff. We'll save that for another podcast. But oh, uh, we, we we totally talked about not getting into it. We we did. Yeah. I don't want to. I, I don't want to go down the the uh, the rabbit hole right now. But one some other day we will. We'll go down. We'll we'll go over the whole thing. We'll do it as a whole whole separate podcast. But uh, well, it was definitely uh, great talking to you, and I uh, uh, can't wait to come back home to Des Moines. I'm out here in uh, Colorado yeah. right now, but uh, one day I'll be back home. So that's gonna wrap it up for uh, my first podcast here. So I hope everyone that's listening enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks.